Before we get started, I need to mention that in this episode, there will be multiple instances where witnesses and family refer to Merritt Wheeler as Indian rather than the preferable Native American. I have made a choice to include these instances rather than cut them out because that descriptor, however outdated, does become relevant. I was 15 and a half and half of me left with him when I I had to look at him that day and had to say goodbye. The seat pain can't get any worse. I was just telling my wife earlier, it'd be like a set of dominoes. It'd be like this first domino that's the rocking. And once it falls, it's just start the chain reaction. There's so much. My stepmother left my daddy. I don't want to call her my stepmother. I never did like her. From day one, she was way too young for my dad to marry. And uh, it's just like all your jealousy thing over me. If I would get see dad on the weekends, it was just like, why is he paying more attention to me than, than them, her? When she left, she left with his kids, and she had them for a week, and she couldn't feed them. So she brought them back to Dad's house and left them. And when Connie left them babies at the house, I moved from my mom's and moved over. I moved from Venice to Arcadia. I started washing dishes and changing diapers and going to school over there. In her very first interview after Merritt was found dead, his wife Connie was asked what he was wearing when he left the house that night. This would have been after they had sex, allegedly, and he told her he was going hunting. Connie said he was wearing jeans and a t-shirt, and she described the boots that he put on as black that tie up. During another interview with a polygrapher about two months after the murder, she repeated that description when she was asked, boots that tie up. During one of his interviews in later years, Frankie Lamar positively ID'd a pair of boots from a picture shown to him by investigators, boots that were recovered from a makeshift campsite in the neighborhood, and that campsite was known to be used by Pete Duell, Connie's brother. Frankie said that the boots were the same ones that Pete had in his tent. The DeSoto County Sheriff's Evidence Report describes the boots being shown to witnesses for identification as brown boots, cowboy style. So not boots that you tie up, like Connie described him leaving the house in. Neighbor Ava Ford, her boys were the ones who found those boots. Uh, I guess a short time after uh, Merritt died and, and some items was found, you turned over to law enforcement. Can you tell me about that? My boys, which was at the age of probably 13, 14, somewhere in their pre-teens, early teens, uh, found in adjacent properties uh, from my house, uh, high Palmetto Woods, found where Pete was hiding out um, in a makeshift living area found a pair of cowboy boots and a pocket knife and brought them home. And I phoned the sheriff's department and um, I don't know his title, but it was Gene Skinner and Dick Lindsay. I don't know what their rank was at the time. And they picked up the boots from us and the pocket knife, and uh, I knew it was Merritt's pocket knife and boots. Knowing Merritt personally, I had seen him clean many a gopher and wild animal with the, uh, the pocket knife prior to that, and um, so I knew who it was. So I called them, and they did pick it up. Um, and then my boys watched the situation where Pete had been hanging up. They did not arrest Pete at that time. Uh, they 
were supposedly to watch and check that place where Pete was staying in the bushes, but um, my kids is the ones that watched him for several days after that. How far apart do you think that would have been to the time that Merritt was killed? It would have been a couple of weeks? Within, within a, week. a week. Within a week. Why was Pete hiding out? Because it was all over the place and Merritt had been found dead and that Pete was a number one suspect and him and Connie. Matter of fact, they were looking at Connie too because of past behavior and all of us in the neighborhood knew Connie's reputation and we knew of all the fighting between Pete and um, Pete had lived with Merritt and Connie for some time as a younger brother. Uh, I guess Pete had nowhere to go and uh, they were more or less like raising uh, Pete and he was a handful with his stealing and his dope and his uh, behavior and going crazy and Merritt tried to keep him in line and he just didn't like it. And. Uh, I think uh, I wasn't there at the time, but I was around it enough to know that Connie just, uh, she was tired of uh, trying to be, I, I honestly feel in my heart that Connie was tired of being controlled by Merritt trying to be a good person and a good father and trying to have a decent family life. He and she. She wanted, uh, she wanted out, and the only way she was going to get out was to um, Pete to get rid of him. At the time, I guess Connie was messing with another old boy by the name of Frankie. Do you know who that was? I don't know who the Frankie was, but I know he hung with that old Willie down there that had all them youngins down at the end of the road. But. The, it wasn't just him. Connie hung with everything. It had a, uh, something between his legs. Uh, between uh, Connie could get drugs out of anybody. That was her problem in alcohol. Now Merritt did drink some, and when Merritt got a little bit too much booze in his body, and I think that's what happened the night that Merritt might have got killed, that he went in with a little bit too much booze on him, and they took it. They he passed out. I might be wrong, but I just feel it in my heart that that's what happened that night that they took advantage of him. Because if he hadn't have been in his right mind, they'd have never, never done it with the strength. He was a mule. They would have never took him over. They they had to have. They had to. He had to have passed out from alcohol because he did drink and he did. Uh, he would become inebriated every now and again. But you're basically telling me that if. You feel if he was been completely sober, wasn't nobody going to take no, him? Nobody, ain't nobody going to mess with the boy. Mm. He's strength. He was a mule. Mm. Somebody had to take advantage of him. Toxicology was done on Merritt's body at autopsy, and he did not have any alcohol in his system. Nor did the tox screen identify any other drugs. So while Ava Ford speculates that he would have to be drunk for someone to get the upper hand, that does not appear to be what occurred in this instance. She also had a bit to say about Connie stepping out on Merritt with other men. This was something that Connie herself eventually admitted to in her interviews. And while I'm sort of squeamish about making that a focus, I do believe that it's important to our understanding of this case and one of the reasons why it has remained unsolved to this day. Public perception about Connie is what law enforcement was hearing, and that's clearly what led Deputy Dan to believe that the main suspect was Frank Lamar. So much so that it appears that he may have succumbed to a textbook case of tunnel vision. It's understandable, to a point. People stepping out of their marriage for sexual encounters, that's not a crime, nor is it particularly uncommon. And what goes on between consenting adults in that regard is not anyone else's business but theirs. Until someone is found lying dead in four feet of water in a local creek, with their head bashed in. And then it's relevant to start asking whether that stepping out 
made one or more parties capable of homicide. Now, the location that the boots were found was right out here in front of your other they driveway. Right out the driveway. And you was actually living up here with Robert. Well, Robert's that's mine. Okay. So, but it's probably a lot different and cleared off this day and age. Back over here, yeah, it would be all big pound meadows. Oh, yeah. All the way to the main road. And then there was one place on the very corner. There was all woods to the corner there. And then all 10-foot palmettos, all everything, you know. The boots. Were you certain that the boots was Merritt's? I know they were Merritt's because I've seen Merritt wear them. Merritt always had flopped over. He had big feet, mm -hmm. big feet. And it was sort of like a flopped over with the toe up on the end. Yes, I definitely knew Merritt's boots. And the knife you said you washed and cleaned. Yes, I knew they were. And of course, the kids seen Pete down there. Seen Pete down there. Around the stuff, so. Yeah. And we've never talked about it since, so I don't know how much they remember about it. I don't know. I do know that they know we called it in. And I know the Pete, they know the, that enforcement came and got it. I remember we used to play in the woods there. And we, one day we found the boots with a knife and we let people know. I can't remember if we toted the stuff out or if we had her uh, we had the officer go in there. I remember an officer walked in there and we had to go with him to where we found the boots and stuff at. Uh, and I want to say I mean, it was by an old trash hole, but we know the stuff wasn't there because we were always plundering through them woods there at that, and there was a big hill, and we used to play there, so. And then one day we found the stuff there. They were like slip-on work boots, uh, like a leather, not a cheap boot, a, like a regular man's work boot. Wasn't the real pointed toe dress style? No, boot. no, it was not a dress boot. It was a work style boot. Just like a leather work boot, like a brown leather like work brown boot. boot. Was there anything particular about them struck you funny when you found them? Do you remember anything about them? They had, they had blood on them, and that's what, and at that time, you know, we were young, it was kind of scary, and then we found the big knife with them, and then we got kind of worried. I do remember that. Do you ever remember thinking about anybody in particular or is there any talk Well back then I mean I mean we had known that got killed so we didn't know if it had anything to do with it or not and that's another reason we could have was a friend of ours. I mean I don't remember him like every day, you know what I mean? But he used to come to our house and I do remember that. How close do you think it would have been to the time passed away that you found those it was it was within that same area because that's what scared us so bad is we didn't know and they and then we had was told that he was killed in our neighborhood and then we found the boots and uh, so it would have been within a month within a couple of weeks yeah I think it was within week, I think it was within I think with it was within like a week of of uh, when they found him on the over there it was within like, within a week, and you could tell the boots that was there had blood on them. And for some reason, I still now I've, um, that we were talking about it. I mean, I don't want to say it was, but there was a tent there in them woods at one time. And I want to, for some reason now, I want to think that's what made it even so scarier. Is there was nobody, there was nothing there. We always played there, and then we found the boots, had blood on them, the knife, and I'm wanting to think that little tent was to the right of that garbage hole, like a little old pup tent, and that's, I mean, we found the stuff and we got out of there, and then that's, I believe, that's why we called the law and then we walked with the cops back in there, but now that's a long time ago, it might have been a different situation when we seen the little tent in there, but for some reason I'm really wanting to think that it was all at the same time. Do you ever remember seeing anybody over in there? Or following anybody back there and over there? I don't remember. 
I can't remember ever seeing anybody in them woods. Describe it again to me from, and we'll just use for a landmark, uh, Henry's old driveway. Tell me how to get there from there. From the old driveway, you'd walk straight west. There was straight across, the straight across the road in between our blocks, okay. and there was a an old garbage hole and an old septic tank, and there was an old power pole, and it was right. I mean, and you can look straight over and see Dave's old driveway that was on the other street, and it was like a straight line because we used to go straight through the woods there, and over the hill, and and, and then would come from the other street, and that's where we all met. That's where we got into our mischief, chasing and playing, and where we went that You said Dave. Dave Perry. So, beyond the garbage straight across. Right, the next street Dave over. Perry. Right, the next street over, straight west, was the Perrys. And used to play. And all, all the whole neighborhood, that's where hung out, was in that area. You back to your memory from about that time. What about a guy that they called Frankie? You remember a guy named Frankie? Yeah, him and his dad lived across the street from me, and he was running around with Connie. That was Connie's boyfriend. No, Connie is. Right. Um, I remember that because one time he came to our house when I was young, and him and Connie, or him and. Uh, and Frankie was going to get in a fight. He was kind of like the smooth talker, the guy that you know, they kind of like talked to. I don't think he knew too much of the other, of the Frankie guy. I mean, he knew him, but I don't think he knew him. I remember one time they were going to get in a fight, and and was over at our house trying to work things out. They had like a mediator, and um, he had found out that they were running around was a big old boy, so. Trying to work it out civilly, using your Yeah, they were, I mean, he was kind of like talking about what was going on, and uh, I don't know if was going to try to talk to them. I just know that I'm over there, and was a scrapper. He wasn't one to talk, but I think things was bothering him over that deal. But I remember coming over there driving an old Ford pickup and uh, there was a they were raising hell and then they were then I guess Frankie come down the road I remember him coming down the road and one of them stopped in the road and was screaming in the yard and they were going to fight and this and that and, but this, that was way before he got killed that was a month or two or three or maybe even a year you know that was shit I was young then I don't remember I just remember that it happening And I think Frankie's dad, what was his name? Mm. Willie. Used to stick up everything for Frankie. I mean, anything Frankie got into, I do remember that too. Because like when they were going to, when him was arguing, he, uh, they were in the road together. He was with his dad or he went and got his dad or something. I remember both of them was going to get both of them. Uh, Do you know if they ever did fight? I, I, I thought, it, I mean, we never seen anything other than arguing that time. Mm -hmm. And then I think it, I mean, as far as we know, it kind of smoothed out. Because we didn't, we didn't, matter of fact, we were made go in the house. So I don't know what really happened or, or out there that day. I don't think nothing happened in the yard that day. Um, but I do remember, I remember very well that was at our house and they were going to fight and all that stuff. But I don't know when compared to the rest of it. That's just too long ago to remember. Do you remember Connie's brother? No. I don't remember Connie's brother. He was around with one of the Bennett's about that time period. I really don't. I, I really don't know nothing about. I I remember them saying some, you know, talking about because he was a drug head and he run with David, 
then it, that's who because uh, David and, and um, uh, Chucky and oh yeah see that's too much to try to sit here and just remember in a few minutes but I tell you right now just sit here and think I could always probably tell you his name if I sit here in a little while and not nobody giving me no help I was just I mean, just going back, trying to remember, because there were people I didn't associate with. You know, I was young then, but I do remember. I want to say the guy looked kind of like old Jay Weatherington, skinny Connie's brother. He was a skinny, like a beanpole type guy. Back then, um, and Frankie's and Frank's dad was a thicker, bigger fellow. I mean, I can, you know, kind of remember what they look like, but that's just, like I said, that's years ago to go back and try to remember. Do you know if Connie's brother and had trouble? I think they always had trouble. Because wow. was the one that worked, and all he, the other one, Doug, was a drug head. I do remember that, as there was a whole deal that's, Connie used to, her and her brother would sit around and do nothing and get high and whatever, and then was out working. Every, I do remember that. The weirdest part was nobody never got arrested for it, and it just kind of got pushed to the side and put in one of these boxes and forgot about. So, I mean, that's what happened. Somebody up here just kind of pushed it to the side, and they didn't want to work on it whoever's case it might have been or whatnot. They just kind of looked over. They did enough investigation for them just to not worry about it. Or change of hands or change of sheriffs or whatnot. That's probably what happened. Too much changing was going on and it just got shuffled around. But I'm glad to see that somebody's finally working on it again to find out. I always said when they find out, I still say they're going to take Frankie and and Connie is the one that's going to be responsible for what happened. In December of 1980, about a month after the murder, Connie and two of her children, who were present the night of the murder, were questioned by a polygrapher at the request of the state attorney. At the beginning of the polygrapher's report, he noted the following. At the time, both Connie and her boyfriend, Frankie Lamar, were suspects, based primarily on a shirt allegedly belonging to Frankie that was found in the pickup truck, and personal items that were missing, namely Merritt's clothing and shotgun. Police had already determined that, in all probability, the victim was not killed where his body was found at Horse Creek, but it was speculated that he was killed back at the Wheeler residence and lured outside by someone he knew. So this generally gives us an indication of where their heads were at about a month after the murder. No mention of Connie's brother Pete or those boots. They were focused primarily on Connie and Frankie, and it's with these details in mind that the polygrapher fashions his interviews. Now, a polygrapher's interview is only going to be as good as the information that's given to them by law enforcement. If he or she is only asking questions based on certain evidence or theories and not others, if that theory changes down the line, it's possible that those results might not be of much use. The polygrapher first interviewed the children. The little girl remembered her family eating around six in the evening, but she couldn't remember if her father ate with them. She said that she watched television after dinner until about nine in the evening. She and her brother slept in the same bedroom, but it was separated by a curtain, and there was no door on the bedroom. She recalled several visitors to her home that day, but she didn't know who they were. She did remember that on that night, her father had complained of a sore throat and chest pains. She didn't hear any arguing or loud voices on that night, nor did she hear any screams for help. She said that her father usually left the house around 6 or 7 in the morning and was gone before she ate breakfast and caught the bus for school. On that morning, she just assumed he had already left for work. After she learned about her father's death, she asked her mom who killed him, and Connie told her that she didn't know. 
After speaking with her, the examiner noted that she was not evasive or hostile in any way, and his analysis was that she wasn't holding anything back, and she did not demonstrate any verbal manifestations of deception. Next, he interviewed the little boy, who said that he had been asleep for some time that night, but was awakened by someone throwing up. He didn't hear any screaming or yelling, nor did he hear anyone cry out for help, but he did say that the throwing up scared him and he was hiding underneath his sheets when his mom came in to tell him that everything was okay. He was also determined to have been forthcoming and didn't appear to be withholding any information. The other little girl that was there that night was Willie Lamar's daughter. She's some years younger than her brother, Frankie Lamar, and she had spent the night with the Wheeler children that night. I want to apologize profusely for the audio quality in some of these recordings. I have done my best, but they're clearly a hot mess, and I'm really only trying to include the bits that are important. How did you know? Um, he was married to my sister at once, Jane Lee. He was married to? My sister, um, Jane. Lisa is the sister of Merritt's first wife. At that time, was he still married to your sister? No, it had that they had been divorced, and he got with another lady named Connie. Okay. He was and living with another lady named Connie at that time? Yes, they as long as I know, they separated him and Connie did, and Connie stopped dating my brother Frankie. Okay. Frank Sr. So Frankie Lamar Sr. is your brother? That's half-brother. Half-brother. And yes, you heard that right. Lisa is also Frankie Lamar's sister, which would make Willie Lamar her father. The night that this happened, um, was you at the... Yes. Okay. On the night that Merritt was killed, Lisa was staying the night over at the Wheeler house with Connie and Merritt's kids. What do you remember about that night? I just remember we went over, we, had, we all had dinner and everything, and I usually spoon that with Jenna for a lot. Um, yeah, I was a little older than her, but I still stayed over. We was kind of close. Mm-hmm. And uh, got a phone call, he left, and we never seen him again. So this was after dinner, and he got a phone call? No, I got pissed off. I don't know exactly what time it was. You know, we had dinner, we had, you know, we sat down, got up the house and everything. We just sat in the room, went to the TV, and he left. He got a phone call, and he was talking, and... Uh, Any yes. idea what he was talking about? <laughs> Not really, um... So Lisa remembers them eating dinner, and then the kids were sitting around and watching TV, which already aligns with what Connie's daughter said. Lisa then says Merritt got a phone call, and he left which would align with what Perry Hoff told police, that he had called Merritt around 9 or 9.15. So that was probably the phone call that Lisa heard, which also aligns with what David Perry said, that the last time he saw Merritt was around 9.15 when he came over to his house to pick up those tools and tell him that he had gotten him a job. And it bears mentioning, if you hadn't figured that out yet, that all of these people live in the same neighborhood. After all this took place, did Frankie ever make any comments to you about it? Yes, he used to threaten me all the time about it. What did he say? um, Just different things, like he, if I didn't do what he wanted me to, I'd end up like or um, sometimes he'd sit around and tell me that he would, you know, my dad went out there and how they, 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 you know, they just made him out in the woods and stuff. Said that a guy named Pete, was, which was Connie's brother, had something to do with it. And uh, it was probably about that Pete had you know, its blue boots and everything. And that just different things I heard when I was a kid. Okay. You know, I was dropped or whatever, and it just gave me suspicions. And... Lisa said over the years, Frankie would threaten her that if she didn't do what he wanted her to do, she'd end up like Merritt. And that he also said Pete had something to do with Merritt's death, and he ended up with Merritt's boots. Why in the world would they want her? Uh, Was he a bad guy? No. Uh, the only thing I can ever think of, you know, for me being my idea, is because of Connie, because Frankie really loved her. Okay. And she left him and went back to Because he, he drank, he was on drugs, he was... You know, it's all the opposite, Merritt took care of his Connie left him. He had the kids. He done the best he could and everything with them. And so Connie, Connie, and 
separated, she was with Frankie. Oh, yeah. But then he, she left Frankie to go back to Yeah, because I guess, because, like I said, Frankie's not a very nice guy. He drinks, he, he's on drugs all the time, he's a very evil guy. He's my brother, but I nothing I can do about that. I have nothing to do with him. Uh, a lot of times, they, they was, they was, uh, he would to come over to our house. My father would actually let Frankie stay there just for a little bit. And they was, you know, sneaking back and forth to see each other. I knew, you know. After... I would like to be at work or whatever, you know. After Connie went back with the and, uh, do you remember Frankie and her were still sneaking around to see each other? You're not in your head, yes. Yeah. So it appears that, despite what both Connie and Frankie and Willie said, after Connie left Frankie and went back to Merritt, the two of them were still sneaking around and seeing each other. He, he, he would get drunk and he'd cry and cry and cry that he loved her and he wanted her and, you know, just if he couldn't have her. And... This is also very interesting. Lisa alleges that Frankie would cry about not being able to have Connie, despite denying to investigators that he was very upset about it at all. He indicated that it wasn't a big deal to him that she had left him to go back to her husband, even mentioning that he had brought her all the way back from Plant City. But it should also be noted that when they returned to Arcadia, Connie didn't immediately go back to stay at the Wheeler home. She continued to live across the street with William Frankie. And this is probably a good time to point out that it was beneficial to Willie and Frankie to have Connie living there with them. By her own admission, she was over there doing all their laundry and cleaning and helping take care of their children. Yet she had left her own kids with Merritt when she left town with Frankie for months. After died, uh, Connie and Frankie become an item again as they get back together. Mm-hmm. He left. Lisa is yet another witness to confirm that immediately after the murder, Frankie left town, which seems odd because Connie didn't immediately leave town and go to Pompano Beach. She was in town a little while before she left. And if Frankie really did care about Connie, and now the husband is out of the picture, you would think at the very least he would be there to comfort her. So him leaving town is a bit of a red flag. But there's a person that Frankie hasn't been in contact with. He has a heart. So I don't think he has. What do you mean by hurt? Hurt her feelings or physically hurt him? Stole from him. Um, took from him. He hurt him. You know, anyway, no matter what, I mean, he, whatever he could do, different things. I seen him take food out of his kids' freezer and sell them drugs. I seen him taking. Uh, Get their Christmas toys and sell them. I said, rather than his own kids' banks, take we out of freezer, knowing he ain't got nothing else. Take his wife's free stamps, her medication, her rent money, her lap money, and take it and just use it for drugs or beer, alcohol, or you know, whatever he can get out of it. And that's when he did some terrible things in his life. Lisa mentions that Frankie Lamar had said over the years that Pete got a pair of boots out of the deal, which is obviously interesting because those boots were found not long after the murder at a makeshift campsite in a wooded area in that neighborhood, an area that most of the neighbors understood to be where Pete Duell was staying. In later years, Pete would admit to staying at that campsite and having those boots. He said he took them from Merritt's house after his murder although Connie said she had not seen her brother Pete during that time frame. It's also curious how Frankie would have known about the boots and how Pete got him out of the deal. If he was gone, how did he learn about the boots? Somebody would have had to tell Frankie about those boots after the fact, or he had intimate knowledge of how Pete got the boots in the first place. It's also relevant that Connie alleged that the boots Merritt had left the house in were black, tie-up boots which are different from the brown leather boots with blood on them that police would later find. Connie Wheeler was interviewed last by the polygrapher, and her interview was followed by a polygraph test. Connie told the examiner that she and Merritt got married when she was 25, in 1972, so they'd been together for about eight years. 
She said she left him in May of 1980 and then went back to him on October 1st of that same year. She acknowledged her intimate relationship with Frankie Lamar, said that she had run away with him, and that Merritt had initiated divorce proceedings. But she had second thoughts and decided that she couldn't live without him. She said she wanted to come back because she knew that he loved her. And she said that her only issue was that their sex life wasn't fulfilling. Connie said that things actually got better when she got back, and they had begun going to church together. She said that on the night in question, a neighbor named Bill came over, but he never came inside the house. He chatted with Merritt outside, and he didn't stay long. This interview is the first time in any of the reports that I read where she said that Bill never came inside, so she would not have been privy to their conversation when he asked Merritt to go hunting with him. Connie basically repeated the story that she had already told police about who had visited that night and what times that they had been there. She also reiterated the part about she and Merritt having sex and then him saying he was going hunting. When she was asked about the throwing up incident that her child had mentioned, although he never mentioned it was his mother that threw up, Connie said that it was her that had thrown up, but it was not the night that Merritt hadn't come home. It was the night before. She vehemently denied being present at any time when her husband was bludgeoned to death and said that he was not beaten or killed in her home on Monday night or any time early Tuesday morning. When she was asked, she said she never got a chance to discuss the murder with Frankie Lamar because one week after the event, he moved away. Connie said she didn't want to believe that Frankie had anything to do with Merritt's death, but anything was possible. Next, she was given the actual polygraph, and she answered the following questions. Do you know for a fact who killed Merritt Wheeler? Her answer, no. Did you plan with anybody to kill Merritt Wheeler? No. Were you present when Merritt Wheeler was killed? No. Did Merritt actually tell you that he was going hunting the night he disappeared? Yes. Did Merritt leave by himself to go hunting? Yes. Have you deliberately withheld from police any information about this case? No. Did anybody strike Merritt in your home on Monday night or early Tuesday morning? No. When you called the construction office on Tuesday morning, did you already know that Merritt was either dead or injured? No. Did you participate in any way in killing Merritt? No. In the end, the examiner concluded that Connie had displayed no physiological reactions that were indicative of deception, and in his opinion, she had not lied in her verbal responses to his questions. In his view, he did not believe that Connie Wheeler was criminally involved in any way. So I have said many times that I don't put a lot of stock in polygraphs. Certainly not for the purposes of ruling someone in or out. It always makes me nervous if I'm watching some sort of true crime documentary or show, and the investigator says we gave so-and-so a polygraph and they passed, so we ruled them out and moved on to the next person. That I just think that's unfortunate. Uh, there are too many times where I've seen guilty people pass them and innocent people fail them. So that's where I personally stand. And even if you trust them, they're only as good as the person giving them. I do report on the podcast if I know that they were done, so you guys can make up your own minds about that information. In this case, I'll give you the polygrapher's credentials, because he's got quite a list. Warren D. Holmes was a member of the Miami, Florida Police Department from 1951 to 1963. He was assigned to the Lie Detection Bureau from 1955 to 63, and then he left the police department at the rank of detective sergeant to open up a private polygraphy firm. He was a past president of the Florida Polygraph Association and the Academy for Scientific Interrogation, which is the former name of the American Polygraph Association. He lectured widely about criminal interrogation to many organizations, including the FBI, the CIA, Secret Service, Canadian Police College, and the Singapore Police Department. He conducted polygraph exams in many nationally known cases, 
including the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Watergate. He is also an author. He wrote a book called Criminal Interrogation, a modern format for interrogating criminal suspects based on the intellectual approach. He polygraphed former Philadelphia Mayor Frank Rizzo in the 1970s in a case regarding official corruption, and he helped clear several wrongly convicted defendants, including Freddie Pitts and Wilbert Lee, who spent years on death row. The two African-American defendants were charged with murder after prosecutors deliberately tampered with evidence. They were sentenced to death by an all-white jury and were imprisoned for 12 years before being pardoned by the then-Florida Governor Reuben Askew in September of 1975. Mr. Holmes also interviewed the rape victim of William Kennedy Smith and believed her despite Smith's acquittal in that case. It should be noted that three other women were willing to testify that Smith had sexually assaulted them in the 1980s, incidents that had not been reported to police, but their testimony was excluded on the grounds that the pattern of behavior was not similar enough in its details. Warren Holmes died at the age of 85. What's clear is that Connie left some details out of her chat with the polygrapher, which came out in subsequent interviews. Details like she had only been home about three weeks prior to Merritt's death, and she left again after that, and went back across the street to shack up with Frankie, and that just days before he was killed, Merritt had come across the street to the Lamar house and yelled for Frankie to come outside so he could beat his ass. Connie alleged that things were going well in their relationship. In fact, Willie Lamar said the same thing. But right around that time, Merritt is introducing Frankie Lamar to one of his friends as my wife's boyfriend. One of the things that seems to have been completely ignored from Connie's first interview and never came up again in any of the other interviews that I read was what she told police about her and Merritt's conversations around those divorce papers. This is something that could have been easily verified, by the way, and something that I would think checks a box under motive. Her husband had papers that Connie herself said that she had talked to him about that night regarding taking her name off the property, papers that he had apparently already filed with his lawyer because she mentioned speaking to the lawyers about it. That is a huge red flag in my book. The night he goes missing, they're talking about divorce papers where her husband wanted to take her name off that property. She said he didn't want her to sell the land if he died, so he wanted her name off of it. And this is just moments before they allegedly go and have sex, and then he leaves to go hunting. Yet, not in a single interview anywhere is she ever asked about that again. I don't know about you guys, but I watch a lot of Dateline, and when faced with that information, I can hear Keith Morrison in my head saying, Very curious indeed. Yet, neither Deputy Dan or the investigator who questioned Connie in that first interview ever brought the topic up again. It's an oversight that's so glaring I have a hard time understanding how it was missed. Honestly, I feel the same way about those boots and Connie's description of the black tie-up boots versus the brown cowboy boots that were found in possession of her brother Pete. There's no mention of any inventory of Merritt's boots having been taken or anyone in the family or people that he hunted with questioned about what boots he wore when he went hunting. These weren't wealthy people. I'm certain that the number of boots he had could have been counted on probably one hand, and the people that hunted with him regularly and his friends would have known what boots he wore out hunting. Certainly his 15-year-old son could have helped in that regard if they had bothered to ask him. Daddy was a real, uh, real jacked man. He was real dark-complected. He's almost like an Indian, pure jet black hair, real dark complexion skin. My great-grandmother, on his mother's side, my grandmother's mama, she was full-blooded Indian. What was your dad's personality like? Nothing but a smile and willing to help you at any point in time uh, as far as taking a shirt off his back or going and get you a shirt if you needed one. Real friendly to get along with. You were 15 at the time that your father was killed? Yeah, I was 15 and a half. I lived with Daddy, and I just moved back home. 
uh, he took Connie back. She left him. And the first week that she was gone, she brought the kids back. And when the kids come back, I moved from my mom's home from Sarasota to Arcadia to help Daddy take care of them because Connie being gone. And the reason she brought the kids back because she couldn't afford to feed them. Uh, yeah. Hmm. I wondered who was taking care of them while she was gone. So you were staying and getting them off to school and all that at that time? Right. Yeah, yeah I was brought out of my school and moved, okay, moved in with him to help the daddy ask for help, and I went running. Oh. Uh, ever since I was big enough to go with him to help pour cement, I was knee-deep in cement. Hmm. Did you ever hunt with him there in Arcadia? Yes, ma'am. Well, we hog hunted. We hung it, hog hunted it all over. And as far as Daddy using a shotgun to kill a hog, I don't believe I've ever seen him use one bullet in a hog. It's always been either of a hammer or an axe, and it's time to butcher that hog. It was time to put it down, cut its throat, bleed it out, and do your processing from that point. As far as, like, taking a gun into the woods to shoot a hog with, that's the reason he had dogs. The dogs did all your hunting for you. All you have to do is keep up with them to get the hog out of the dog's mouth and get it tied. If you had to, depending if you wanted to bring that hog home out of the woods with you or not. Yeah, that seems to be the, the bone of contention with all of his hunting buddies that were interviewed. They all said, first of all, he would not have brought a gun with him because if you're caught poaching with a gun, the, the you know the penalty is much more severe if you've got a gun. And number two, how are you going to hunt without your dogs? And he didn't bring any dogs. So, And he was in his dress boots his Sunday. He, Daddy got religious there, of course, last year before his death. He was rebaptized. I think four and a half months before he got murdered. For the second time, he got rebaptized. Uh, and why he would wear his dress boots into the woods, uh, I would have uh, knowing how he valued his money and how it had to be spent. There would have been no way. He would have went barefoot instead of scratching his boots to wear to church. That's why, you know, one major thing that's always got a hold of me was... Uh, what they so-called claimed he'd went hunting with his boots out and shotgun. And I was like, what was he doing with a shotgun in the woods? Most of the time when we were hog hunting, it's jumping the fence, and that's trespassing. And I was told if I was able to keep up with him and knew my way home, I would be able to go. If he was not going to stick around and hold my hand and get caught by no law, waiting on me. So when I told him that I was able to find my way home and my way out of the woods, I was able to go with him. In other words, all this hog gun that we did was mostly all illegal, mostly jumping into ranches, pastures. Oh, okay. So where he was found was not somewhere that he would hunt? No, ma'am. Where he was found, that was right on the side of the highway. Highway uh, 70 or 72. Uh, they found his body in Horse Creek where they drove his truck and two, the embedment at the creek where it got stuck, and they drug his body from the truck into the water where he drowned. Willie moved in about a, a, a eight and a half to a quarter of a mile from Daddy, Daddy on, on the same road. That must be how Frankie got into the picture from where his dad was at. He must have got released out of prison. He spent most of his life in prison. Why would Frankie be there? He must have just gotten out and needed a place to stay. And I say that's how he got involved with Connie. Tell me what Connie's personality like as a stepmother. What was she like to you when you were that age? What was she like to me? She was never really mean to me. But there was always a disagreement between me and her because she was not my mother. Yeah, that's pretty common with step-parents. Kind of hard because I got my two sisters and my brother involved with this. And they were so small. I was eight and a half years old. Like I said, it was about seven and a half months. And it was like two and a half to three. So they, their opinions, they don't believe that their mom had anything to do with it? No, they don't think mama had nothing to do with it at all. And what about Pete, their uncle? 
From your perception, what was her relationship like with your dad? How did they get along? Well, they had their ups and downs. They were relying on money. If you got rained out one week, didn't make no money, and that means that might have been arguing going on. Never no physical fighting in front of me. Never not like daddy lay a hand on her, no. There were some arguments I have seen, but as far as anything physical, I had never seen any of that. Did you ever speak with Merritt's mother about what she remembered happening in those days leading up to her son's murder? My grandmother sold her house to move to Arcadia to be closer to my dad. That's how close their relationship were. After daddy was murdered, I moved in with my grandmother and we, for a year, we helped each other cope with life learn how to start all over again. Uh, Daddy was running a, a real high fever that day. And he'd been sick the last couple of weeks just trying to kick that cold, the flu bug. It did it, him being sick though, it did not stop him from going to church that Sunday. Or work that day. He went to work too. Right. Yeah, all day in the hot sun. He dropped me off that Monday morning at my mother's house in Sarasota, in Venice, where I could go to school, and told me to call him Wednesday night of that week to let him know he needed to be there Friday afternoon after work to pick me up where I could come back and stay with him that weekend. So you're saying the weekend before you had been over there? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I never got to call him that Wednesday night. Tuesdays, I was a pre-release work program in school. I got a phone call telling me to be ready that my aunt was going to pick me up that something had happened. My aunt did not pick me up. My mother picked me up. My mother told me that somebody had passed that was once a part of her life and a part of mine. That was the very first time I've ever said one foul word to my mother because I told her she was blank and lying. Yeah. And that's, I can tell you that's the first foul words my mother I have ever said. She had to say that about that. In the next episode, we'll start getting into what Frankie Lamar and Willie Lamar, his father, told police when they were questioned in the days after Merritt Wheeler's murder. Stay tuned.